he really got me. You know, I think it's because he was gay. Got the nuances more. get me a gay mickey gotta get a gay well hello and welcome to another episode of in the details my name is colin drucker and your name is insert name here and we are together having a conversation again this week about all of the micro moments acting choices and nuances that make me want to make a podcast and talk about them um specifically all of the nuances acting choices and micro moments of 1982's poltergeist that's of course what this week's conversation is going to be about but first, before we get into it, the other day I mapped out my recording schedule for In the Details for the rest of the year. And I don't want to give everything away, but I, and because some of it could change, right? But I kind of thought maybe I'd give you a little bit of a preview of what's to come, some things to look forward to. One of the things that I'll have coming up in the next few weeks is, now you know, I did an episode on Call Me By Your Name recently, and had, um, you know, a lot of things to say about it. I have a lot of thoughts, I have a lot of feelings. Um, I've also kind of been chit-chatting with the folks at the Thanks For Coming podcast. Um, and they're another, uh, you know, queer media, RuPaul's Drag Race recap kind of podcast. And uh, they are big fans of Call Me By Your Name and recently did their own recap episode. Um, and, you know, we have obviously very different points of view about this movie and about this story. and. Um, our thoughts were maybe to come together and have an episode where we talked about it and we talked about the things that resonated and talked about the issues that came up and talked about the book as well, you know, and really got like a well-rounded conversation about Call Me By Your Name. And I think I mentioned this in the Call Me By Your Name episode. Um, so that is coming up. We haven't recorded it yet, but that is on the books. I also have a three-part series coming up that I'm very excited about and I don't know how much I want to tell you right away about it, but I do want to say that if you've been listening to either All Right Mary or In the Details, then you would know that I am quite the fan of the comeback. I could do an entire podcast about the comeback. I could queen out in gross detail on the comeback, and maybe at some point I will. But because I don't want to make this whole podcast about the comeback just yet, I thought three episodes in a row was enough. Um, so that's my plan. Coming up next is a three-part exploration of the nuances of the comeback. I really feel like Valerie Cherish is kind of the patron saint of In the Details. It only makes sense to kind of give her her due time. Three episodes worth. Um, now, after that, um, I because I have had, and you know, I'm gonna save, save some of these as surprises, but I have had requests and um, I have had recommendations that I think are great, that I would have never thought of. And so in September, I'm going to make sure I cover those requests and those recommendations. And then in October, as you may realize both from this episode and things I've mentioned in past episodes, like the Hereditary episode, um, I do love horror movies. I do love the aesthetic of them. I do love the nuances of horror movies. and. I don't love the violence, you know, I mean, that I don't want to focus on. But in October, I have a handful of episodes planned that I think are going to be a really fun exploration of different nuances in the horror genre. 
um, that even if you're not a fan of horror movies, I think are worth uh, tuning into. So um, I don't want to tell you everything. I just want to tell you that's coming. And then in November, I have another three-part series planned, which I'm not going to tell you yet what it is, but it is another favorite television show of mine that I could talk about forever. And I want to talk in each of these episodes about certain relationships and characters and details that make them special. And then I've got a couple of favorites that I want to cover towards the end of November. Uh, one being Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And the other being uh, a couple of movies... Oh, I'm not going to tell you, actually. No, I'm not going to tell you what that is. I don't want to leave some surprises. And then I haven't figured out what it is yet, but I'm just going to say this. I have something planned for December. And I think I know what it is. I just don't know what the format is yet, but I think I know what it is. So, um, so stay tuned. I'm really, um, I'm really looking forward to it. I, what's been kind of cool about this is because I'm not like, I'm not following like a drag race season. You know what I mean? Like I, I have to recap whatever's on, you know what I mean? Um, not that I have a problem with that, but, uh, this, the seasons kind of help produce All Right Mary. Whereas this, I can do anything I want. And so really in the details is turning into what are things you really want to talk about? This is your opportunity. Someone's listening. Someone's into it. If one person is into it, and I know from at least a few emails I've gotten, there are people who are into this. That is all the validation I need to keep going. So um, I, am, I am completely gooped about this, this schedule of events coming up, and I hope you're going to stick around and find out what they are. But that being said, let's talk about today and not the future, because that's all we got. Um, today's episode, I have been wanting to do a Poltergeist episode forever. Um, well, I mean forever. I mean, this is the sixth episode, but I've been wanting to talk about Poltergeist forever because as a horror movie, sure, you know, it, it, it's certainly scary and, and exciting and, and, you know, uh, there's tons of, you know, movie making magic, right? But I feel like there is such an emotional resonance to Poltergeist that's always intrigued me. And there is this kind of deeper story going on and this sort of deeper character study going on within Poltergeist that's surprising. So Poltergeist stars, of course, Joe Beth Williams, Craig T. Nelson, Beatrice Strait, you may recognize her from a previous In the Details episode, and Zelda Rubinstein. Um, and it's, uh, as I said before, this movie is as much a character study as it is plot-driven. And so I feel like as we jump into this, as we dive into the details, let's start with meeting the Freelings. The story of the Freeling family is told in passing. We see what they are before we know who they are. For example, Stephen used to be a diver in high school, and now he's the kind of guy to fall asleep in front of the television some nights. Diane is a stay-at-home mom who has been good at rolling joints for years. Their daughter Dana is navigating her sex life at the same age her parents had her. And we only know this because of details Steve shares with Dr. Lesh in their first meeting. Diane is 32, suggesting that Dana was a mid-60s teen pregnancy that cleaved together two high school sweethearts who, sure, may have stayed together anyway, but would have, but would never find out otherwise, you know what I mean? Apparently, in the novelization of the movie, it's clarified that Diane is Stephen's second wife, and Dana is from their first marriage, is from his first marriage, but, um, I don't know, I like the story better. Meanwhile, middle child Robbie is plagued with an overactive imagination, the kind of mixed blessing that is haunting him through his childhood, but could serve him very well as an adult. That is, if he recovers from the PTSD of getting eaten alive by an angry ghost tree, assaulted by a sadistic clown, and quite nearly sucked into the gaping maw of hell. 
And five-year-old Carol Ann is the true first generation of settlers of this unhallowed ground the Freelings are living on. Steve and Diane bought the first house in Cuesta Verde five years ago, but Carol Ann is the first born here on the rebranded quote-unquote Green Slope. She is the face of gentrification, in a way. She is the so-called quote-unquote new native of the land. What happens to the Freelings in Poltergeist isn't random. There's a reason they're living in a house of horrors while the Tuttles next door remain entirely undisturbed through dinner. If you think about it, Steve is truly responsible for this. He may have not known the dark truth about how Cuesta Verde was being developed until it was bursting out of his front lawn, but Poltergeist is not a movie about Steven saving his family from the capitalistic corruption of his company. When Carol Ann disappears, Steven is reduced to a shell of a man who just wants his daughter back, but doesn't have the strength or wherewithal to figure out how to do that. The true hero of Poltergeist is Diane. Diane is by no means stoic, and we'll t we will we will talk about the emotional complexity of Joe Beth Williams' performance. But there is a, a calm she's keeping because she has to. Because she is the matriarch of a family falling apart at the seams. We see this uh, when Dr. Lesh and her assistants, Ryan and Marty, come to the house for the first time. Stephen is haunted, casually drinking beer and speaking with a matter-of-fact sullenness that suggests resignation. Diane, in comparison, feels calm by necessity. The way she commands the conversation with Dr. Lesh while Stephen just stares blankly suggests that while she may not realize it, she is entirely up for everything she will be asked to do to save her kids. We've been trying to hold ourselves together as a family. Of course, no one's been sleeping much. Stephen has missed so much work. But he's been wonderful, really wonderful. How long have you been investigating haunted houses? Well, Mrs. Freeling, I... Diane. Diane. So let's talk about Jo Beth Williams in this movie. Really, her first uh, major role, except for a brief but memorable scene in Kramer vs. Kramer. Um, I think two of the main reasons Poltergeist works so well is A, Jerry Goldsmith's score, and B, the emotional resonance of Jo Beth Williams as Diane. These two elements work together perfectly, especially in this, this one moment when the family is searching for Carol Ann after the tornado. They've, they've checked every corner of the house, and it's that existential exasperation that comes with knowing there is nowhere left to look, and yet they still haven't found her. We know from earlier in the movie when Stephen and Diane are smoking pot in their bedroom that Diane is concerned about Carol Ann inheriting her childhood sleepwalking affliction, especially with a new pool currently being dug in their backyard. The paranoia of pot meets the Rolodex of tragedy every mother carries in her mind, but it's all hypothetical until this moment Diane realizes there is one last place they haven't checked. Diane! Did you find her? No, I've looked everywhere. This, this is crazy. Oh my, my God. The swimming pool. The swimming pool, the swimming pool! This same kind of emotional collaboration of music and performance happens when they're contacting Carol Ann in the living room for Dr. Lash. Stephen watches again in a sort of stunned silence as Diane walks calmly through the process of connecting with Carol Ann on the other side. 
on paper, it should all be a little ridiculous, right? Like this family's daughter is trapped in some kind of purgatory and only reached via their television, particularly Channel 3. But it works because what we're really witnessing is a mother desperately trying to reach her child. It's no, I, I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that she's doing award-worthy work here. And if she had been nominated for an Oscar for this performance, the clip they played at the Oscars would have to be when she feels Carol Ann's disembodied energy pass through her. It's the way that she gasps with her entire face, like lighting up like an epiphany. She processes the experience with like a mix of, of relief and wonder. At this moment when she is most disconnected from Carol Ann, she connects with her in the deepest way possible. And again, it's Jerry Goldsmith's score and William's careful emotional unraveling here that makes this scene feel so moving and significant. She just moved through me. My God, I felt her. in Dr. Lesh's arms, and Beatrice Strait is just a wonder in gentle perplexity here. Of course, the scene doesn't end there. Carol Ann was running from something, and it too soon passes through the living room, like a, a tornado of its own. But I think this is a good bridge for us to talk about Beatrice Strait and the nuanced role Dr. Lesh plays in this story. I am all too happy to have a reason to talk about Beatrice Strait again. She, of course, being the sole topic of the second episode of this podcast and continues to be one of my favorite Best Supporting Actress winners. What I love about her in Poltergeist is the bond she develops with Diane. It feels almost maternal. Lesh is brought in for her intellectual experience, but she makes just as much impact with her emotional intelligence and support. I love the whispered conversation she and Diane share over a flask that night. When it's quiet. You 
be fun and your hands were shaking about a month. <laughs> it isn't over. I'm absolutely terrified. There's a gentle humor in the way Diane asks, would you like a glass for that? When Lesh opens the flask and... I think it's a response to the doctor's openness and frankness. There is a, a catharsis in this conversation. The next morning, as Dr. Lesh and her team prepare to leave, Diane sits down at the kitchen table and shows her the empty flask with this sort of tentativeness that almost suggests she's afraid this is all too much and they will be left alone to deal with this. Dr. Lesh, again, the magic of Beatrice Strait here, simply like gives this small laugh in return that says, well, how about that? There is this great pause where Diane looks down, is sipping her coffee, and a tear has already slid down her cheek, which could be one of my favorite nuances of this movie, that she's already started to cry, like she's been waiting for bad news before she even sat down. And Lesh explains, I'm leaving Ryan here with you. Marty won't be coming back. Which makes sense, right? If you've seen Poltergeist before, Marty is the one who imagined that he was ripping his own face off in the mirror. Uh, but then Lesh takes Diane's hands, and the shot cuts to just a close-up of Beatrice Strait's face. Her eyes are wide with compassion, and she tells Diane, I'm coming back. Diane wordlessly climbs into Dr. Lesh's lap like a child and embraces her, holding on for dear life as the doctor tells her not to worry, that she will be back and she's bringing help. Diane's face is paralyzed in this sort of shock of gratitude. There is hope. I love the sense of ensemble in the third act of the movie. Dana has gone to stay with her friend, and Robbie is going to go stay with his grandmother. Um, it's worth mentioning the scene where he leaves in a taxi is a fascinating micro story about the effects of trauma dovetailing with the invisibility of the middle child. At this point, this is, of course, when we're introduced to the pint-sized medium, Tangina, played by the indomitable Zelda Rubinstein, bringing just a dash of camp rooted in conviction. Zelda Rubinstein is like Tammy Brown. It works because of her conviction, because she proves that this isn't a shtick. This is who she is, so we can't call her unrealistic or over the top. Of course, Dr. Lesh and Ryan are there as well, as promised. Um, I really like the character of Ryan, played by Richard Lawson. He has this, uh, this sort of calm curiosity the whole time. There's no sense of skepticism or judgment that really kind of resonates in his involvement with the story going forward. So there's that great monologue from Tangina explaining the nature of the beast that has Carol Ann, but I want to focus on the next scene, which is a two-minute and 55-second single take featuring all five actors preparing to make contact with Carol Ann in order to rescue her. The movie is actually full of really interesting ensemble staging, using foreground and background very intentionally. We see it throughout the sequence of contacting Carol Ann in the living room. 
Notice, for example, when Carol Ann says hello to Stephen, Stephen appears over a lamp, says hi to her, turns off the lamp, and as he sits, then Dr. Lesh stands in the background. In the kitchen scene the next morning, the one that ends with Diane embracing Dr. Lesh, notice how Ryan, Diane, Steve, and Dr. Lesh are each positioned at different distances and places in the kitchen. Lesh is closest to us at the kitchen table. Steven's across the table from her. Diane is over his shoulder at the counter behind him. And then Ryan is in the background at the other side of the kitchen. I'm not saying there's some significance to the staging other than just creating interesting scenes, but they're all kind of act one guns for this set piece. The scene opens with Ryan writing the numbers on the tennis balls and pulling back as Tangina moves into the focus of the shot with Diane over one shoulder trying to appeal to Carol Ann while Stephen is a step back against a wall on the other side and Dr. Lesh watches in the background. Call to him. Carol Ann? Carol Ann, it's mommy, can you hear me? Carol Ann, please tell mommy hello. Try again. Can you say hello to Daddy? Daddy and I miss you so much. So much. We love you so much. Please, just say hello. She's under restraint. What? Who, who's restraining her? There are many arms about her. She thinks it's safe. Quickly, who is she more threatened by, you or your husband? Neither. Uh, Steve decides the punishment. The oh, children are... That's not fair. Write about it later. Stephen, make Carol Ann answer you. As Stephen is then activated, he moves into focus. Tangina moves towards the bedroom door, and Diane is over Stephen's shoulders as a kind of support or navigator. It's a, it's a very swiftly choreographed shift, and it's so well done, bringing all of the focus, not just the camera, but the character's focus, onto Stephen. Caroline? Be cross with her. Stead. Be angry with her. You'll never see her again. Caroline, I want you to answer me. Tell her if she doesn't answer you, she's going to get a spanking. Oh, come on. I've never spanked her children. Honey, please just tell her. Now we are focused on Diane, and the camera zooms in to just her to the right, with Tangina and Dr. Lesh in the background. On its own, it's kind of a great shot of our three unlikely heroes. You know, when we talk about, like, Poltergeist being about uh, the, the power and the heroism of women, it's like, these three women are my heroes in this movie. Is she all right? Diane, ask about the light. Caroline? Honey, do you see a light? Shh. Shh. Tell her to go to the light. No! They'll follow her. They've been following her for weeks. Now tell her. It's all right. It's all right. Tell her. Mind. He knows what scares you. 
much from the very beginning. Don't give it any help. It knows too much already. Now, open the door. Joe Beth Williams' Oscar reel could also include this moment. When Tangina tells her to tell Carol Ann to go towards the light, that no! is also one of my favorite nuances in this movie. This, this rage ignites in her eyes, but Tangina explained earlier that there may be things she asks them to do that go against everything they believe as human beings, everything instinctual, and we watch her struggle with that here. I love the, the tempered frustration of trying to explain to Carol Ann that she is waiting for her in the light. The frustration of Carol Ann not understanding and of Tangina forcing her to lie. When she starts to cry and sobs, I hate you for this. Again, like amazing nuance. She backs against the wall and the camera slides past her as it moves in on Tangina. And much like the scene starts, zooms into a small, focused shot. This time of the doorknob to the bedroom. Everything is waiting behind that door, including maybe Carol Ann. However, where Poltergeist knocks it out of the park for me is the just-when-they-thought-it-was-safe climax. Carol Ann is, of course, rescued from the other side in, again, a, a surprisingly emotional sequence that feels intentionally like a birth moment, which is fitting if Carol Ann's birth truly did represent the colonization of Cuesta Verde. The Freelings are, of course, moving and are leaving that night. Uh, Steven goes to the office to get some paperwork, Dana's off on a date, and Robbie and Carol Ann are playing like nothing ever happened. Diane, uh, after color treating some stress-induced gray streaks in her hair, lays down on the bed and just as she's hearing some commotion go on, going on in her kid's bedroom, is promptly assaulted in a totally new way by the spirits. In just an oversized t-shirt and underwear, she's vaguely reminiscent of Ripley at the end of Alien just, you know, stripped down to her underwear for this final confrontation. We don't necessarily know why this assault is different, why it's more than vaguely sexual, but my theory is that she had the gall to steal her daughter back, to enter into their world and further encroach on their territory, and so they come back with a vengeance. Of course, at the same time, Robbie is getting strangled by the clown doll, and the portal to God knows where in the closet has transformed from golden white light to the tentacle devil himself. And of course, like what I, what I love about this whole sequence is this sense of calculated chaos. It's also a, a, a much more visceral depiction of what Diane must endure to save her children. She's dragged up walls and thrown downstairs. She's electrocuted, uh, all before, of course, the infamous pool scene. Uh, most fans of Poltergeist know that the series itself is considered cursed uh, due to the number of supernatural experiences the cast has had during filming. And the tragic deaths of Dominique Dunn, who played Dana, and Heather O'Rourke, who played Carol Ann, are often attributed to this curse. Many have said uh, that it's due to the use of real skeletons in this pool scene, which alone makes the whole experience much more horrifying. Apparently, Joe Beth Williams did not know these were real skeletons until after the scene was done, um, I also know that she didn't want to do the scene at all because there was so much electrical equipment around that she was, um, you know, rightfully a little nervous about being electrocuted. And so apparently Steven Spielberg was like, fine, I will get in the pool with you. And it's like, if you're going to get electrocuted, so will I, you know, uh, and that was the only reason she would do it. So it's interesting that he was willing to be that supportive, but not tell her these were real dead bodies. There's a lot of debate also about how involved Toby Hooper actually was as the director versus Steven Spielberg. But I feel like all of this 
this sustained feverish pitch is very reminiscent of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which of course Toby Hooper also directed. Um, that was what uh, kind of inspired Steven Spielberg to offer him the role of directing this movie. And so I kind of see that connection, you know, of, of the chaos that it seems like Toby Hooper is really good at directing. My favorite part of all of this, though, is when Diane is able to get out of the pool, uh, gives up on getting help from those neighbors, and runs back into the house to the screams of her children. She gets upstairs and turns, and the hallway to the bedroom already feels like it's 50 feet away and just getting further and further. And because of the score, there's this nauseous nautical vibe. Cued by this marching percussion of the score, she breaks into the sprint to the bedroom. I love how she then, like, she gets a hold of Robbie, who's got Carol Ann's hand, and there is this gallon of strength needed to pull them out of this moment. And we get this close-up shot of Diane in this moment. And the Freelings are not a religious family, but there is this vague sense of, well, if we're dealing directly with the spirit world right now, I might as well appeal to anyone I can find, right? Now, whether any kind of benevolent energy actually helps them in that moment, or if that's just the last coffer of strength Diane can dig from to save her kids, I guess it doesn't really matter because it certainly works. Of course, Stephen does eventually arrive with Mr. Teague, paralyzed, uh, and even kind of driven mad in a way by the realization that the headstones were moved, but not the bodies. Um, Diane saves the kids and the dog, thank God. Steven pulls it together enough to get them in the car and flee Cuesta Verde as their home is reclaimed by the land it once was and the spirits that dwelled there. However, <laughs> if Steven didn't come home, I imagine Diane would have just kept running. She'd steal the neighbor's car and flee to the Holiday Inn herself if she had to. Diane would literally go to hell and back to save her children. And some would say after tonight, she has. It's worth mentioning, if only because it does star uh, in the details alum, Rosemary DeWitt, that there is a remake of Poltergeist. Um, however, I have not seen it. I think I've seen a couple minutes of it, and it was terrible. So um, that's about all I do need to see, so I can't really speak to it. Um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts either on the original, the sequels, the remake, any other nuances or deep cuts or micro moments or acting choices that you want me to talk about or want to talk about on your own and just clean out about. Uh, the best way to do that is to drop me an email at inthedetailspod at gmail.com. Drop me a tweet at Colin Drucker. Um, or, um, you know, if you want to leave something a little bit more permanent, you can head over to iTunes and leave a five-star rating and potentially a positive review. Because if it's negative, then maybe I... Then that's terrible. Don't leave me a negative review. I only have two reviews right now. If I have one of them bad, no one's going to keep listening. Like, don't do that to me. Um... Anyway, I think that is all I've got for you this week. As I said, next week I'm starting my three-part series on the comeback called Cherishing Valerie. So I hope you'll come back and check that out. Um, and otherwise, I will talk to you soon. And I thank you again for joining me for another episode of In the Details and putting on your party hats for another celebration of acting choices, micro moments, and nuances. Thanks, everyone.